This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And in our New York studio, we have our Hollywood correspondent in from Los Angeles, Rebecca Keegan. Hello. Rebecca, you're in New York not just for the spring weather, which I understand has not really cooperated. <laughs> yeah, you guys, this is not spring. I regret to inform you. But there's a lot of nice flowering trees. Yes. To remind you of what of it's supposed what to be like. What it should be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're in town for the Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, you're going to be a juror. So we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, the experience of being on a film festival jury and what you can kind of learn from that. But first, there's another huge festival on the horizon. Cannes is in less than a month, and there has been a ton of news about it in the last week as the battle between Cannes and Netflix that started about a year ago, really, uh, really reached a full boil. Uh, Rebecca, you were reporting on this last week. Does this boil down to uh, a battle between two really important guys who don't want to give an inch? What caused things with Netflix and Cannes to get so intense? Well, they started really poorly last year when, I mean, I think Richard and I were both sitting in the Netflix screening of Okja where the projector broke. Um, or no, it they started projecting frame. it in yeah. the wrong format or yeah. something, which people were booing and hissing. I had no idea. And everyone's like, well, you can see part of the movie at the top of Tilda the- Swinton's head was cut yeah, off, but yeah. it seemed like a giant sort of, um, F you from can to Netflix at their, at their, the streaming company's first time at the festival. So we think that they intentionally had the, uh, projector off the screen. There was, that was implied by many people. Um, you know, there had been sabotage. What's the French word for sabotage? Saboteur. Yeah. And, you know, critics were booing the, the Netflix logo. Meanwhile, you know, Netflix had, spent obviously an extraordinary amount of money to be there. They had this big glamorous villa um, and they were really excited and I think that they did not have a great experience at Cannes. To go back a little bit, why is it that critics were so primed to be anti-Netflix at this point last year? Because there had already been some scuffle between Netflix and Cannes by then. Right. Well, Netflix's distribution model obviously is not inclined toward theatrical releases and a lot of critics are bothered by that. In France, of course, they have this very long window that they demand for theatrical release three years after a movie's in theaters it can go on a streaming service netflix doesn't play that way and can had decided that netflix movies going forward that any movie that doesn't have a theatrical release in france would not be able to play in competition so any movie that shows at Cannes this year is not going to be streamable for three years any competition movie so for instance okay. like the han solo movies playing out of competition okay that won't affect but, them but any movie in france that has a theatrical run has to wait 36 months 
before it can go on a streaming service. It's it's in less, France, yeah, or, in France. Okay, it's so we less, we can yeah. watch it on Netflix. We're fine. Here. We're yeah. fine. It's okay. just like, but correct me if I'm wrong, Rebecca. The problem is, is that Netflix would not budge off this day and date thing. Even in France, it would be illegal for a movie to be in a theater and on a streaming service at the same time, essentially in France. And so the festival said, well, then you can come to the festival, but you can't be in competition because competition films have to screen in theaters in France. They have right. to be theatrical releases. And, and didn't and also didn't the the director say like just do it with one just pick one movie and we know the rules kind of ridiculous and we hope they change it but this right. is the rule right? right i mean he seemed to be was that like I mean, some I guess, kind of weird you mean terry fermo the yeah. yeah well he you know there were a, a few movies that seemed to have been affected and one of them is this orson wells movie uh that has been you know, it was shot in the 1970s and was just finished. And it obviously was never going to premiere in competition. So at one point, you know, Terry Fermo was saying, just let the let the Orson Welles movie come and play out of competition. I think really, you know, the arrogance of Netflix and the arrogance of the Cannes Film Festival are pretty much equal. So you had this game of chicken going up right until the lineup announcement. And um, Really, I think, you know, the people who lost are those of us going to Cannes because there are several movies that Netflix had intended to bring, including the new Alfonso Cuaron movie that are now not going. But you'll be able to watch them on Netflix that night in your hotel Theoretically, yeah, or soon. Yeah. So, what else? What else was Netflix planning to bring that now uh, won't premiere until presumably Telluride or Toronto? Good question. It's a lot of it flown out of my brain. I have to quickly Google my own story. Because... Oh, I, I have your story. For okay. <laughs> so, Alfonso Cuaron's movie, which I b- believe is I'm supposed to be like a small scale Mexican family drama. Paul Greengrass's Norway, which is about the uh, horrific shooting that happened in Norway about eight years ago. Jeremy Solnay's Hold the Dark, which I actually don't know that much about. And then the Orson Welles movie that you mentioned, Rebecca. And then a documentary from Morgan Neville, who also has a Mr. Rogers documentary out this year, which is fascinating. Uh, but he has a documentary about Orson Welles, which I guess goes hand in hand with that uh, unfinished release. I have to say, I'm kind of relieved that the Paul Greengrass movie won't be there because like, <laughs> you don't who have wants to watch, to watch it yet? that. Like, I, we, I guess you, Katie, you and I talked about this a little on Twitter. Like, <laughs> we did. That when I sort of realized that that movie existed, but like, I'm sure it'll be well made. But oof, that's that's tough stuff. I, it's I, hard you know. to get excited about a movie about violence for me right yeah. now. I mean, I, thinking about the Lars von Trier movie, which is apparently very violent, which was announced that will be coming to Cannes despite out all of competition. Of his, interestingly, out yeah. of competition and despite the filmmaker's very sort of problematic history at the festival and just in general, both of these movies seem like they're pretty dark and pretty violent and it's like gosh we got a lot of that going on in the real world tough to want to buckle up in a movie theater for it i think yeah and i and i don't know how you felt last year um, rebecca at the festival but i was pretty like depressed by a lot of the selection last yeah. year like it was some dark stuff it was the Yorgos Lanthimos movie and Michael Haneke and it was just like Ugh, like the world is terrible enough right. like but it doesn't seem like Cannes has tried to make any sort of like they're not trying to cheer us up this year no but, yeah um, I think they figure sun in rosé right. balance <laughs> everything going on in the screen yeah. if you didn't get the message last year and fix the world then <laughs> well, what, what can they do they have to double down so we have we have the lineup now, um, and Richard, I remember you saying, like, I think the consensus is that it's pretty low on movie stars, which can be tricky for coverage for some people, uh, but are there bright spots in there? Does it look a little less depressing? You know, I'm really curious to see um, the Spike Lee movie, Black Klansman, mm-hmm. um, which is based on a true story, which I think is not something he's done a lot of before in his in his film work. It's, it's a... I'm, I don't like a lot of the movies that Spike Lee has made in the last... 
don't know, roughly 20 years. You know, he's made interesting stuff like Chirac. But, it, you know, so, and I know that he likes Can a lot. So that'll, mm-hmm. that, I don't know. I just think it's going to be an interesting combination of things, especially given what's going on in this country and the way that France sort of reflects that in weird ways and doesn't in others. And I think that that could be good. And, you know, the Under the Silver Lake, which is the other kind of big American title in the competition from the director of It Follows, there's already a trailer out for that. Andrew Garfield's in it. It doesn't look Oscar-y or anything like that, but it certainly looks interesting. Although it does kind of feel like more of a Sundance movie in a way. Mm-hmm. It follows was also at Cannes, so I guess there's precedent there. Yeah, the Black Klansman, I had lunch recently with the producer of that who also produced Get Out, and he feels really strongly that that's Spike's best movie in about 20 years. He said, you know, the All movie, right. you've been waiting for him to make for a really long time. This is it. And it's a really interesting true story about African-American man who goes undercover in the clan it's really yeah. hard to understand uh, but apparently this actually happened and um people seem to think that spike is back and it stars john david washington who is denzel washington's son and was also in several movies at sundance and is kind of like having a moment right now and so that that's interesting too and yeah, so I don't know. I think there's reason to be excited about it. But and past, you know, past those two titles, you know, cynically for our purposes, it's a lot of foreign stuff with a lot and a lot of famous people in them. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not good. And I don't think, you know, I think a, a lot of the when the lineup was initially announced, there was a lot of sort of disappointment or like, you know, like, oh, what are we going to do? But um, that shouldn't detract from the actual quality of, of the movies, you know. Fun fact about both of these American titles, Topher Grace is in both of them. Topher Grace is the Nicole Kidman <laughs> of Can 2018. I can't Who wait to thought? see what he wears on the red carpet. I Nicole can't really either. brought it last year. Yes. Um, thank God the jury, though, is super starry. Yes. Right? And we got Kay Stu, uh, Ava DuVernay, Kate Blanchett's the president of the jury. So we'll Leah be- Sadu, Denis Villeneuve. Like, it's really, it's quite a quite a lineup on the jury. So we'll get good red carpets. That's right. Well, yeah, they go to every uh, red carpet event. So as the person who'll be curating our Cannes Red Carpet slideshow, I'm very grateful to Kristen Stewart and Kate Blanchett. Good stuff is coming. I wanted to go back to Netflix for a second because a big part of Netflix's gambit has been, you know, we have all the money in the world. We can bring your films to this huge audience. But... But I think as Noah Baumbach was kind of indicating with Meyerowitz stories, like you're getting thrown into the Netflix machine. It, it feels like this can thing is a really big blow to their efforts to try to draw auteurs like that. Like Alfonso Cuaron really can get his movies made anywhere. Why would he try to go to Netflix again if they're going? he's going to be denied this huge platform? Do you get that sense, Rebecca? Well, I think, you know, Cannes is fighting its own sort of battle for staying relevant. So ultimately, I actually think Cannes is hurt more by this than Netflix. I mean, Netflix will just go to Venice or Telluride or Toronto with its movies. Definitely Netflix has trouble with this issue of convincing auteurs that, you know, it ha- it's going to give them a proper theatrical release and marketing campaign. But I think in this case, sort of can comes out with a worse black eye. They may not realize it now, but with a worse black eye. I mean, this and, you know, sort of the banning of selfies and these other things that just sort of seem to suggest that they're, they're getting less and less relevant. Um, I think, you know, Alfonso Cuaron makes a new movie. It will end up premiering at a fabulous festival, just not this one. I'm kind of curious about the psychology of Ted Sarandos here because, you know, he's obviously a businessman and like running this like massively influential media platform. But I think he does also care about stuff like Cannes, right? Like he has a kind of like, like artsy kind of side to him. Um, I remember last year at Cannes, I think it was our first day we were sitting and I believe having a glass of rose with Julie Miller, our colleague. And we were talking about the Netflix stuff. And you said something interesting. You said that Amazon wants to play the game. But Netflix wants to change the game. Mm-hmm. So what do you think Ted Sarandos's like vision is of that? Is it just a can that like lets anyone in or like how does that function in his kind of 
Yeah, I think I think he sees this sort of love affair with the theatrical release as kind of snobby and exclusive. And many of these movies that premiere at Cannes, their quote-unquote theatrical release is like four theaters in New York and L.A. It's just not – most people don't get to see them, whereas his platform brings these – art house movies or foreign language films to a huge potential audience. So he I think he just thinks he he likes seeing movies in theaters too. He's a huge Orson Welles fan, which is why he financed this movie that nobody would finish for 40 years. But I also think he sees a snobbery in the traditional model and the way it really excludes people outside major cities. Mm-hmm. So but is that really a reason to just be completely implacably obsessed with the idea of day and date like it just seems sort of yeah i agree i mean unnecessarily stubborn i agree unnecessarily stubborn and amazon has certainly found a way to make it work otherwise although amazon's business model is different i mean they um just want to get you to subscribe to their service so that you then use it to buy other things whereas netflix wants to get you to subscribe to their service to see their stuff period end of story right but if I think what seems to be missing from Ted Sarandos's analysis is that theatrical release is part of a marketing rhythm. Right. And the inability to see something in a way is makes part cool. of what makes people want to see it. Mm-hmm. And when something just like pops up in your queue and then, you know, for whatever reason, you didn't look at it because you're actually just thinking like, I'm going to just watch another David Chang. And then it disappears from your queue like that. You know, it just it's like there's something not working there. I True. feel like. Yeah. No, it doesn't give you. I don't think Netflix has yet created an event movie. You know, they've had some docs that you would see a lot of people watching at the same time sort of talking about on social media. And it's also really hard to judge because they don't share their data. And so I have no idea, literally no idea how many people watch these movies that they spend, you know, $5 million on, $10 million on. And I've talked to filmmakers who also don't get data. So it's that's the really crazy part to me that the filmmakers never know who is watching. Like, you know, the whole Netflix thing of engineering it for the audience. Like, if Noah Baumbach knows that he had a huge amount of people watch his movie in the Midwest, like maybe that affects what he decides to make next. I agree. Well, I mean, guys, let's be fair. Some people do get to see the data. If you're Ryan Murphy and you're about to be given $300 million, then you get to see the data. Well, and TV, by the way, I think for TV, like, it's an amazing model. It'll be interesting to see once Disney launches its streaming service. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, filmmakers will be able to be in business with a company that has this massive theatrical distribution model that they can offer. They're also going to have Fox Searchlight, who knows how to take art house movies out. I think that will create some problems for Netflix. I mean, there's still even now, you know, agents, when you talk to agents about Netflix, they say um, some of them, you know, I bring it to my clients as the take the money and run option. So that's you got to you just got a big mortgage. Um, do a Netflix movie, you know, right. and I don't think that's what Netflix wants. Well, and all the money because be. all the money's up front. There's no there's no back end, but there's right. also no none of the risk that you would take on for that. Right. But now, and part of it is also the theatrical distributors, right, refusing to run these movies because there you can watch them at home. And Sarandos's argument is presumably the same one that we went through in the magazine world mm. in the past ten years, which is like cannibalization doesn't exist. Remember that argument? Yeah, yeah. People just watch more. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there is some evidence to suggest that. It's it's just where they're watching that's changed. But ultimately, people are spending more time consuming content, that disgusting word, content. Right. Yeah. 
The thing that continues to baffle me about Netflix, just really anecdotally, is someone who uses their service to watch documentaries and acclaimed TV series and Oscar nominees, is that when I go to the Netflix homepage, there's no effort whatsoever to show me any of that stuff. Like, I get the ad for the giant Adam Sandler movie that they spent the most of on the homepage. And I know how rigorously they engineer these things and, like, change the thumbnails for shows based on who they think you are. It just it feels like they don't care. And I feel like filmmakers must notice that, too. I think your husband's just totally. watching Adam Sandler movies <laughs> I totally, late at night. My first instinct was, Katie, it's time to talk to your husband about his <laughs> Netflix viewing habits. <laughs> what is he watching after you go to bed? I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> briefly about the can jury and how we expect it to be very glamorous and sorry. And um, so Richard, you have been in can enough and I think heard a lot of conversations about what the jury likes and what the head of the jury is trying to do. There's a sense that the juries on these things are not just picking things, but like who they are and their personalities have a ton of impact on things. At least it can, right? The two sort of things that I know anecdotally are that last year when um, Pedro Almodovar was the head of the jury, his favorite film, he sort of said post the announcement of the square winning the Palme d'Or, uh, he said his favorite film was BPM Beats Per Minute, but that he felt that he needed to sort of be more, you know, um, magnanimous and sort of like letting every like having the kind of like be a consensus choice. So the, the impression I got was that it was no one's the square was no one's favorite movie, but everyone liked it enough, which is kind of like how the, maybe the tiered balloting system works with the Oscars. So you get, you get that. But then you also get stories I heard from like a few years ago when Xavier Jolene was uh, on the jury. He was not the head of the jury that year. It was the Coen brothers. There was reportedly some, you know, acrimony behind the scenes there where um, uh, Dolan kind of like stonewalled everyone and said that this French actress had to had to share best actress with Rooney Mara or he like wouldn't leave the room or something like that. So, you know, and then at the press conference after like Dolan said something like, you know, I, I feel like I've grown or I've grown a little bit or something like that. And one of the Coen brothers leaned into the microphone and said, don't worry, you didn't. Or something <laughs> like, like, so like, I think that it can get pretty contentious. And technically, I think the head of the can jury can just like rule unilaterally and choose a winner. I don't think that like that's done often because, you know, it would be bad press or something. But but it seems like an intense thing. And, and this year in particular, like with a major movie star as the president of the jury, um, there's going to be even that much more attention on, on what they choose. Choose. And, you know, it's interesting that it's Kate Blanchett, Kristen Stewart, Ava DuVernay, Lea Seydoux. Um, uh, the jury is a lot more better proportioned in terms of male-female than the, the selection certainly is. So that'll be interesting, you know, especially considering what Jessica Chastain, a jury member last year, had to say about watching these movies about women that were not really actually about women. You know, so I think it's going to be all eyes on the jury this year. I was sort of hopeful last year when it seemed like... Terry Fermo was listening to Jessica Chastain yeah. talking about the sort of paucity of 
female voices at Cannes. And then this year's lineup suggests no, because it's like 14% female directors or something like that in competition. But I do, it is sort of heartening to know that Kate Blanchett is in charge of uh, deciding what's good because I can't think of anyone better qualified. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine arguing with Kate Blanchett? Like if she wants to unilaterally determine something no. and be like, yeah, okay. whatever." <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'd just be like, you know, I probably have horrible taste. You're right. <laughs> yes, You're right. my queen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we all have experience uh, serving on film festival juries for ourselves, not with Kate Blanchett, I don't think. But I mean, these are just people, right? Like we think of, you know, a film festival winner as being kind of Dane from on high, but these arguments that you're talking about between like the Cohen brothers, like it feels like it proves the, the humanity of the people who are just trying to figure out what's best. I think that was something that was interesting last year from Cannes, and I've, I was on like a jury where I could watch everything at home, pretty much, you know, on like screening links and stuff like that. But uh, like Will Smith was on the jury at Cannes last year, and I think that he and Chastain, I think too, like these are not people who are necessarily used to seeing like eighteen movies in the span of like a few days, you know. And so I think like a certain amount of like I don't know tiredness kind of comes into factor, mm-hmm. like coming to play, and like kind of maybe the last thing you saw is the best thing, or the first thing you saw was the best thing. So it, yeah, they are human. beings beings you can't always like divine you know, higher intent out of what they choose because sometimes it's just like i was you know well i think that's a good point too is is and then the aggregate of actually like sitting through eight to ten or to 18 movies in a short yeah. period of time i think it affects what you like a sure. little bit right sure. so when i did south by southwest a few years ago it was oliver platt Kate Arthur from BuzzFeed and myself. And we Whoa, sat, that's and quite uh, a room. Uh, it was great. Oliver <laughs> insisted that we all sit in the balcony so no one could like watch us react. I was like, no one knows who I am. <laughs> you get mobbed at South by Southwest, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then he kept ordering us rounds of um, chocolate milkshakes the entire time. It was quite I've had that a lot of wonderful really chocolate smart. milkshakes. <laughs> and at the end of it, we gave the award to a film called Fort Tilden, which is like a pretty crazy comedy. I don't know if you've ever seen this Yeah, thing. from the people who made search, the show Search Party. Yeah, 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 and so and so. Yeah, they went places. You guys made a good choice. It was controversial at the time. People are like, "What? You liked that movie?" Yeah. But watching eight, nine movies in a row, we were like, "This is the one with a creative spark." It's not a perfect movie, but this is the one where I'm like, "Holy shit! These people are talented and they're doing something different." And so, like when Search Party became a thing, Kate Arthur DM me on Twitter and she's like, "Are you watching Search Party with the amount of pride that I am?" Oh, we yeah. felt like very vindicated. But it's it's just a different, you know, that yeah. that like trying to figure out what's best. First of all, what does that even mean? What's best? You know, what are you looking for? I think that's where a jury president or the, or the jury conversations are going to you're going to start with questions like that. Like, what are we even trying to reward here? Yeah. You know, because it could you could go a lot of different directions. The jury that I was on um, last year was New Fest, which is like an LGBTQ festival that's run in New York. And my category was international. So it was we we were watching, you know, gay themed movies from like India where, you know, not a lot of gay movies are made and, 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 and but then also really a slick, you know, kind of Irish romantic comedy. So like the level of the filmmaking and the sort of budgets were so different that we, we had a lot of conversation when we were deliberating about like, okay, well, like obviously like this one is technically the best made, but which one like means more to like the country it's representing or whatever. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, you're, you're right, Mike, that it's not always just this kind of like easy, like, well, that's the best one done. Like you, there's, there's a more to it, to the decision making. I think. Yeah. I start my uh, Tribeca jury screenings tomorrow and I they sort of give you a schedule and I the titles were not familiar to me and I decided that I would not do any research on them, which if I was covering them as a journalist, I would, you know, dig into them, find out about the filmmakers. And I just thought, you know, what, I just want to go in and see it and have whatever 
the closest thing you can have to sort of a pure reaction and uh, go from there. I, I love, I always prefer doing that at festivals Do yeah. in general. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's good to go in like totally cold. It's the only time when you can, mm-hmm. you know, if by the time a movie comes out, you've been hit with the marketing and all the other stuff. But at a festival, sometimes you're just like, I don't know what this is going to be. Right. Let's find out. Fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, the Cone Brothers directed it. I oh. mean, literally, I've had that, <laughs> that level of ignorance, self-imposed ignorance. The thing that you guys are making clear is that when you're on a film festival jury, like, you know, the world isn't going to remember who wins the Palme d'Or, much less the South by Southwest jury prize. But it matters so much to the filmmakers. Like, Mike, you help make search party happen and you know rebecca you're gonna like be seeking out talent at tribeca so it's a it's a huge responsibility because the people who you're deliberating on are gonna know it and take it to heart so much oh god now i'm thinking of the movies that shows that probably didn't get made because we were look at that "Eh." there's genius (laughs) that never happened yeah they get you know i mean the filmmakers they get a laurel for their poster which seems like a small thing but when you're trying to market some teeny tiny movie or maybe you're looking for distribution that little laurel can can be a difference maker and it's certainly most of these people who make festival movies have made them at great sacrifice they've run up their credit card bills they've alienated all their friends and family and they show up and like you're their first audience and um you have you really do actually have the potential to have an impact on their career god Sorry. Now I made I made Mike feel really now like go the weight of responsibility. Sorry, Somebody everybody. got divorced and went into foreclosure because yeah. you didn't pick them at South by Southwest. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But it might. I mean, think South by Southwest is is wonderful. But I mean, think about that intensity for being on the can jury. That's uh, yeah. Well, I think it can. The movies, you know, they're higher profile movies probably than the ones That's we're true. seeing. So they come with more potential for distribution and whatnot but yeah at the festivals that we have been at these are a lot of these movies are made just like blood sweat and tears yes yep Mm -hmm. well that's why they pick people like ava duvernay with nerves of steel who i don't think anything could flap her at this point so true she can make the tough decisions uh, Rebecca and Richard, do you guys be attending some Tribeca stuff in the, in the coming days? Is there anything, like a lot of these movies will be coming out in various ways throughout the year. Anything people should keep an eye out for if they're in New York or maybe that's coming down the pike? I am uh, going tonight, as we record, going to a movie with Sarah Jessica Parker where she plays, uh, it's called Blue Knight, where she plays a singer of, of some renown. I don't know how famous the singer is supposed to be, who's I think dying of a disease or something. So she's in it with Renee Zellweger and Common. So it's a kind of wow. a weird lineup a of, of, of actors. And, you know, this is, it's, it, Tribeca is kind of that festival. You're like, oh, so-and-so has a movie there. You know, it's a lot of strange kind of things. And so I haven't like necessarily heard any buzz about it, but I'm certainly curious about it. But Tribeca is mostly known these days as kind of a, a documentary and they open yeah. festival and they opened with Love Gilda, um, which Rebecca, you saw. Yeah, yeah. it's, uh, you know, this is this documentary about Gilda Radner and it's, really sort of bittersweet. I mean, she had this tragic life, which I knew the broad outlines of, but which the doc gets into in great detail. They have her journals, they have unbelievable footage of her in childhood. And I mean, the footage of New York City in the 70s is so amazing. The city looks so dirty and beautiful. And everyone with their crazy hair and their big jeans it just looks like a wonderful time to have been a creative person but the movie you know i sort of went to, went into it expecting it to be really funny because gilda radner is, was so funny but i was uh moved uh to tears multiple times in it because of her life was really tragic which is not what i was really expecting heading into that. yeah yeah 
And Love Gilda has distribution, right? That's coming out. Uh, it's a CNN soon. movie, actually. Ah. Oh, is it? On the sort of biographical front, on Sunday, I'm seeing a biopic uh, of Robert Mapplethorpe, just called Mapplethorpe, and with Matt Smith from The Crown is, is, is playing um, the famed photographer. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and the after party is at a very um, intense gay nightclub, which really? is interesting. It's going to be funny to see the Tribeca sort of film crowd at this place that yeah. I've seen in very different contexts, let's just say. Well, so, actually, yeah. I'm going to... Uh, so Matt Turnauer, former Vanity Fair editor, as, uh, and who made Valentino and a lot of documentaries, uh, has a Studio 54 documentary. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to see that next Tuesday. The after parties at the Museum of Sex. That's I was right. like, yeah. hmm, <laughs> am I going to go to this? New York in the 70s is having a really yeah. big time. It really is. Yeah. I, I blame sort of nostalgic Gen Xers, I think, who are just like, why were we too little to get in on all of <laughs> yes. this? Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and Richard, isn't Matt Smith playing Mapplethorpe in that movie? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so Crown fans will uh, have interest, you know, in that. I'm sure. Maybe I feel like Prince Philip would not approve. Claire Foy uh, as Patty Smith. That would be. There you go. That would be wild. (laughs) When are they going to make the Just Kids movie? That's all this makes me. Oh, uh, seriously. Yeah, I've been waiting for that for a long time. Meanwhile, tonight I'm going to the sleeper called Scarface that maybe Mm. heard of. Oh, they're doing. They're premiering the restoration of the film. Should be long and swear filled and there's a conversation afterward um, and the party's at a coke den afterward right probably yeah. i assume yeah. i have not yet gotten Great. my invitation more 70s new york yes yeah, we're yeah. really just say hello yeah. to my little friend exactly oh uh, scarface amazing pacino's been having a, he had a retrospective a couple months ago it's a uh it's big time so we can look out for some coverage of Tribeca on VF.com. And uh, Rebecca, I don't know how much you get to like tweet or share from your jury experience, but I'm dying to hear about all the blind item fights you have behind the scenes. Uh, yeah, the I don't know brothers. how much I'm allowed to tweet. Who else is on the jury? There's only three people on my jury. I'm in the jury for the Nora Ephron Prize. And one of them is an actress from Saturday Night Live. And I think the other one is a filmmaker. It's a good little group. And I don't think well, there will be a lot of, I, I suspect it will be pretty chill with only three people. But and, not like Jacob Bernstein. It's not the writer. No, son. Okay. no, no, no. Because then there could that be, be some be, real drama. Then there could be some serious <laughs> drama. The Nora Ephron Prize sounds like such a great thing to win. Like, I might rather have that than just about any other film festival prize there is. It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about Tribeca and Can and all sorts of other things. Uh, we're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. At that Rebecca. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of Richard and Rebecca's can experience goes to Rebecca Keegan. They've run up their credit card bills. They've alienated all their friends and family. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the review's director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.